0: Please stand for the scripture reading today. It will be in Matthew 9, verses 14 through 17. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast. No one will put a piece of, no one puts a piece of unshrunk clothing on an old garment, for the patches tear away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the wineskins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed but new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. You may be seated. Well, it is so good to be
1: back with you all this morning. We are very grateful for the chance that our family had to be able to go down to Tennessee and spend time with family and dear friends. We were able to celebrate a holiday with Lindsay's family in the first time and I can't remember how long. We were also able to be there so the whole family was present for family pictures. We were able to introduce Ezra to a lot of Lindsay's side of the family that had yet to meet him. We were also able to visit a a church that remains very near and dear to our hearts that we actually were a part of planting more than a decade ago. We were welcomed in that church like family, even by the number of members who we had never met before, had never seen their faces, but yet because of of the love that others there hold for us, they knew about us. They were eager to meet us and to receive us there. It It was sweet to be able to join with the saints, even in another location, in the worship of our God. They were even kind enough to ask me to preach for them last week, from Romans 13 on the Christian and the civil authority. Our trip was pleasant, it was needed, and we are even beginning to catch up on the sleep that we lost from 222 plus hour drives in 10 days, straight through each time. I am, I am supremely thankful to be back among the congregation at Legacy. I am thankful and encouraged by the sweetness of fellowship that we were able to to partake in across this country. Yet there is something unique about the local church where God has us. Something unique about this body through which God will do much of his work in my lives and in your lives. Once again, I wanna thank the men who stepped up in their care for this church and for preparing for the Lord's Day services these past couple of weeks. I was greatly encouraged and it is a a wonderful relief as a pastor to know that even when I am not there that this congregation will be fed from the word faithfully. That men men are here who can preach from God's word, who can handle it correctly and feed the sheep. So thank you both, Clay and Rylan, for doing that for this church when I was gone and Ryland with his his first ever sermon. I was very blessed by that brother. I have no doubt that God will develop you and use you for his kingdom in the years to come. Well, before we turn to our text this morning, I ask you to join me in prayer. Father, I thank you for bringing us back safely to this congregation. I thank you for your faithfulness, Thank you for this body. Thank you for what you have done in this congregation and what I have every confidence you will do in the years to come. You are gracious. You are good. And you are worthy of every bit of our lives to be devoted in worship. Father, help us this morning to to hear from your word Open our ears and our eyes that we might be transformed by the words of Christ, by the interaction that he had with the disciples of John. Father, use me as a a vessel to, to bless this church. May none of it be about me. May all of it be about Christ. May you be glorified and your people thrive. Praise in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, we are turning once again back to our systematic study of Matthew verse by verse. I'd ask you to recall with me, if you will, how we have gotten, where we have gotten to at this point in Matthew's gospel. Remember that This is still early in the ministry of Christ. This is still that earlier time before a lot of the conflict would come that we will see later on. After preaching on the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus showed his authority, he was recognized as having an authority that nobody else that people had ever heard possessed. Well, after revealing his authority there, he revealed his authority over sickness through a number of miraculous healings. He revealed his authority over nature by calming a raging storm that was in the process of killing his disciples. And he showed his authority over the spiritual world by casting out a legion of demons. Then he showed his authority to forgive sins as he proclaimed the sins of a paralytic man forgiven. And then he healed his body just to prove that he could do it. These kind of miraculous revelations of Christ's authority served as continual reminders of the uniqueness of the ministry of Christ. He was not simply the latest iteration of a persuasive teacher to come on the scene. He was not just the latest wondering eccentric, not just the newest healer, or even just the latest prophet of God. And he was not just a better version of those things that had come before. He didn't do what they did, only better. He was something new. Something to which all the previous structures and types could only vaguely allude, as shadows of some distant and wonderful reality. This would push Jesus and his disciples into conflict with those who were most beholden to the status quo. Because of Christ, the world could never be the same again. It would never be the same again. There could be no casual bending, blending of new ideas, the new ideas with Christ into the old philosophies. The creator of the universe had come into his creation Christ was different than what had come before. His kingdom was different than what had come before. His call was different and his disciples were different. We see this kind of conflict come into play as John the Baptist's disciples approached Jesus to bring up something that concerned them deeply. This would have been shortly after the calling of Matthew and after Matthew had Jesus and the other disciples in his home and they feasted together. Remember, Matthew was tax collector and as such he was a notorious sinner. That's how he was held by the Jews. So this confrontation with the disciples of John the Baptist comes right after Jesus and his disciples were feasting in the home of a notorious sinner. Well we might want to assume that anyone who followed John would also follow Christ that's not what we see in scripture at this point John's disciples were very much a distinct separate group from the disciples of Jesus We actually receive them into the book of Acts. We see that there are still pockets of people who are disciples of John, who, who knew nothing of receiving the spirit, who still needed the gospel proclaimed to them that they might believe in Christ. And we're informed by history that even hundreds of years after this point, there were still people who were disciples of John and not following Jesus. Well, that might seem quite odd to us, we would assume that since John was the precursor of the Christ, that his disciples would naturally cling to Christ when he was revealed. We need to remember the, the mission of John, remember the, the weight that John carried. Jesus named John the Baptist the greatest man to ever have been born from a woman. That's, that's quite the statement. And if you think of the weight that the Jew is put behind Moses and Elijah. And Jesus said, no, John was greater than they. He was the last of the Old Testament style prophets. The last of that breed of messenger from God who lived a very uncommon life. Everything about him, the way he lived, the way he dressed, the way he ate was a parable that God was speaking through him. He was in a sense Elijah come back to the nation to prepare them for the day of the Lord. Many people came out to John. Everyone took notice of John. There would have been no shortage of young men who would have thought it was either beneficial to their reputation or to their souls to be associated closely with John to want to go out and follow him to become his disciples. In a sense, John was an alternate path to follow from the tired choices of the famous rabbis or the Pharisees. There was prestige attached to being a disciple of someone who was so well known, someone even so controversial as to draw the negative attention of the king. John certainly held weight when the king had him imprisoned and beheaded because of the threat he represented. So the status of being John's disciple would likely have been worn as a garment by those who followed him. They would likely have been drawing attention to themselves in much the same way that the Pharisees and their disciples did. They would have been praying in a way for everybody able to see and admire, living in a way that everybody could see and admire them, giving to the poor in a way that drew attention to themselves, and fasting regularly as proof of their devotion. As John was an ascetic, so too would his disciples have been. John was marked by the severity of his lifestyle. Recall from Matthew 3-4 that John wore a garment of camel's hair and ate locusts and wild honey. He didn't live a lavish lifestyle. He didn't wear comfortable clothing. He wielded great influence but he had a very simple, severe lifestyle. His disciples after him would no doubt have worked diligently to emulate that severe lifestyle in their own lives, to match that or surpass that of their master. And so it should be of no surprise to us that when these men saw that Jesus and his disciples did not follow the same kind of strict rules that they followed, they saw it as a problem to be addressed. Not only were Jesus' disciples not fasting, as I mentioned before, they were found in a sinner's house feasting. Their lives were not marked by the same kind of severity that John's disciples had put themselves under. Well, there can also be no doubt, as we look at the text and as we look at its companion passages in, in Mark and Luke, that the Pharisees fueled these concerns about the lack, apparent lack of devotion in Jesus and his disciples. The reality is, at this point in time, John's disciples had much more in common, at least on the surface, with the Pharisees and their disciples than they did with Christ and his They hadn't benefited from Jesus' public teaching or private conversations. The Pharisees would have looked for any opportunity to be able to drive a wedge between John and Jesus, between the disciples of John and the disciples of Jesus. They needed allies to help them discredit Jesus. They needed to find something where they could drop him down a peg in the estimation of the people. This unlikely partnership between John's disciples and the Pharisees, even though John's attention had often been pointed at the Pharisees, remember before Jesus was saying hard things to the Pharisees, John said hard things to the Pharisees, calling them a brood of vipers, saying who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Even though John had been pointed hard teachings in their direction. There was a partnership between John's disciples and the Pharisees and it illustrated something that we ought to be aware of. Just because our cause might align with another group in a specific area does not mean that we would want to be associated with that other group. It also does not mean that that other group will be fair or kind to us. In truth, the Pharisees were no friends of John nor any who would follow after him. Yet they were more than happy to employ John's disciples in a way to make a move against Christ. Though the, John's disciples should have showed Jesus the same deference as John did, they were instead emboldened by the Pharisees. We read in verse 14, The disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Well, Mark included the Pharisees as being among John's disciples, being with them as they asked this question to Jesus. They were collectively the standard against which Jesus' disciples were being judged. How could Jesus' disciples feast and enjoy themselves and in a sinner's home, no less? Why didn't Jesus' disciples show the same kind of severity in life as proof of their devotion to God as the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees? How could Jesus, who was supposed to be this great and mighty teacher, allow his disciples to act like that. Well, to understand the way they asked the question and who they were actually questioning, we need to understand a bit more about the teacher-student relationship in first century Israel. In that time and culture, the master or the teacher was held responsible for the actions of his students. Just as a disciple would rise and fall based on the reputation of his master, so could the master's reputation benefit from an exceptional student or suffer from one that fell into scandal. So you you wouldn't naturally question the disciple. You would question his master. How can your man be like this? So when they came to Jesus, they were actually calling out the teaching and the influence of of Jesus, that is what they were questioning. That is what they were judging in their question. It's a little bit brazen of them, don't you think? It's a little bit like a young child going up to someone else's father and asking, why is your, why is your child like this? Why is your child not good like I am good? That question itself both assumes the fault of the Father, while at the same time presuming to speak to him as a peer and not with respect as one who is an elder. Well, Jesus would have been right. He would have been justified to respond harshly. And I'm sure part of us wishes that he might have to just tear these these impudent disciples apart. Just to tear them down, to show them just how foolish they were. How dare you question the Son of the Living God? But that is not how you responded. If these disciples of John didn't have any knowledge of Jesus, we might better be able to understand if not completely forgive the way they approached him. Yet, if they were in fact disciples of John, they should have known a great deal about Jesus. Just recall how John the Baptist spoke about Jesus. He said that Jesus was mightier than he was. He said that Jesus was of a higher station than he was because he had come before. And remember that that's a mighty statement because John was actually older than Jesus. John came onto the scene before Jesus. Yeah, but he understood that Jesus was from before him. John declared that Jesus was the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. That very one whom John was sent to prepare the way for. John didn't even consider himself worthy to untie the strap of Jesus's sandal. And yet somehow his disciples thought they were worthy where their master knew himself to not be worthy to openly question the way that Jesus led his disciples. They should have known better. Even so, Jesus didn't respond with the rage that we might have been able to enjoy reading these thousands of years later. Jesus responded in verse 15. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with him? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So Jesus did not rebuke the question or even the questioner. He showed them instead that they simply did not understand the situation. They didn't understand the significance of his arrival and the inauguration of his kingdom. Jesus was the bridegroom. Therefore, it was time for his people to celebrate. The old conventions were not just in need of a new patch. They were so frail and worn out that they could not survive any attempt to be joined with the wonders of what was happening now that Christ had come. The wineskins that held the old wine were not fitting for the new wine of the new covenant. Everything had changed with the arrival of Christ and the task that had been set before him. Jesus' disciples could not fast like the disciples of John because they were the friends of the bridegroom at the wedding of the groom. In those days, the wedding celebration lasted seven days. Seven days of merrymaking and feasting. Seven days of corporate joy and celebration. Those were not occasions for mourning or anguish. In fact, it would have been quite inappropriate and very offensive for someone to go about a wedding with signs of mourning. Well, it might seem odd that Jesus answered a question about fasting with a metaphor of being with the bridegroom during his wedding feast. Yet if we think about when the people in the Old Testament fasted, I think this will make more sense. Throughout the Old Testament, fasting was tied to mourning or anguish. It was either something that was spontaneously that followed after great loss or pain, or it was a planned way to express deep anguish and seek direction from God. Well, the Pharisees, and apparently the disciples of John, did not fast in the way that the Old Testament saints had fasted. It wasn't in response to a great anguish. It wasn't in response to a great need in their lives. It became a matter of course and habit, in order to show off their great devotion, their willingness to endure a severe type of living as proof of their piety. So these disciples of John, following after the pattern of the Pharisees, took a practice that was designed to be used when the needs greater than hunger overcame somebody and they turned it instead into something that would gain them the approval and the praise of men. Jesus' disciples couldn't fast because they were in a time of celebration. They were experiencing the joy of new beginnings in the presence of the king who had come to claim his bride. Jesus alluded to himself in this passage as the bridegroom. Well, that was a Christological claim. We can understand that plainly enough. We see that in the way that Paul spoke to the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians eleven two, 2, he said, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. He sees his job in that is as pointing and guiding the church to Christ her husband. Or as Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians five twenty-five 25-27, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that he might be, she might be holy and without blemish. Again, the relationship of the Christ to his church, the bride. By the time we get to the revelation of John, at the end of the book, we see this clear picture of Jesus as the bridegroom and the church, as the bride. Revelation 197 and eight. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Or a little later on, we see that same bride now spoken of as the new Jerusalem descending from heaven, being presented to her husband, the king, seeing there the culmination of the relationship with God and his people as God no longer dwells with them in a tabernacle or in a temple, but among them and within them. It's the culmination of what we're pointing to that we're seeing glimpses of even in early in Matthew of Christ as husband, as bridegroom, as his bride, the church being prepared and made holy and ready for him. And that that cosmic wedding celebration that we will have once all things are set. So we see the Christological messianic implications of Jesus being the bridegroom. And yet, his statement would have been even more shocking to the people who heard him say it. Because while we're used to it in the New Testament of speaking of Christ as the husband and the church as the bride, the Old Testament gave no clear tie to the language of the husband and the Messiah. That wasn't a messianic expectation. That wasn't messianic language. The language of husband and bride was common throughout the Old Testament, but it was always in relation to God and his people. Isaiah 54, 5, and 6, just as one example. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off says your God. So when Jesus said that he was the bridegroom in whose presence his disciples could not be in mourning, he was calling himself God. He was making a bold statement about his deity. Don't ever be fooled into thinking that Jesus never called himself God. He did in many ways, if we would simply know our Bibles better. We shouldn't let the significance of that miss us. Well, tied to the inappropriateness of Jesus' disciples fasting while he was yet on earth with them was the certainty that at some point in the future, Jesus was going to be taken away from them. They were celebrating with him now and for good reason. The world was being forever changed because of the presence of the king and his kingdom. Yet the time was soon coming when there would be mourning and anguish for his disciples. The sense of the language here is that Jesus would be taken away by violence. There was an anticipation of shock, heartache, and deep loss when he was taken away. Just recall some of the words from Isaiah 53. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, although he had done no violence. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief." And on it goes. Well, in this brief statement, hidden among the picture of a groom with his friends, This is the first time that Jesus hinted at what awaited him. It won't be until Matthew 16 when he is explicit and make it clear to his disciples that he must suffer many things and be killed and then be raised. No, Jesus' disciples could not fast while he remained with them, yet they would have reason to fast later. They had already been warned about the persecution that they would face for righteousness' sake. They had already seen that it was going to be very difficult for those who followed Christ. The way was narrow and the way was hard that leads to life. They had reason to expect hard days lay ahead. These disciples would experience such loss that the desire for food would have been taken away from them. They would experience such longing for the presence of their Lord that they could not eat until they communed with him. Yes, Jesus' disciples would indeed soon have cause to fast. Yet, and this might be an interesting little point here, even if they had been fasting this whole time, so even if Jesus' disciples had fasted as regularly as the disciples of John, they would not have escaped the judgmentalism from John's disciples. Can you think of why? Jesus' disciples had been warned against the empty displays of religious devotion as practiced by the Pharisees, and apparently by the, by the disciples of John. They had been commanded to act out their, their religious devotions privately, in secret that when they fasted, they were not to let anybody know that they were fasting, but to keep their appearance up, to not go around looking sulken and weak, but to look normal, to make sure that they appeared strong, to fast in a way that only God in heaven could see and be pleased, but that no men might see that they might receive any benefit from them. So even if they were fasting, they would not have gained the approval of these hypocrites who only stood devotion as it was lived out in front of the eyes of men. (laughs) Well, as we've already said, the arrival of Jesus had changed things on the earth, things that could not be made to reconcile with what was already in place. When an everlasting kingdom is inaugurated, it leaves a mark. Now there are, there are many, countless minor kingdoms and nations that have, have risen and fallen throughout history that ultimately leave no mark. Very few leave a mark that extends past their remembrance. Yet an everlasting kingdom leaves a mark that cannot be ignored, that cannot be undone, that will not fade. Jesus' disciples were not like the disciples of the great men of the earth. How could they be? They walked with the one who had true authority in himself, not a borrowed authority, not a delegated authority, absolute sovereign authority in himself. They walked with God, they dwelled with God. They knew him, they loved him, and they were loved by him. Jesus' disciples were first-hand witnesses to a massive change in the world. The kingdom of God had arrived. The old covenant was being replaced by the new covenant. The ethnic people of God were sealing their fate in idolatry and the new combined people of God were about to emerge in the church. Jesus pressed into the failure of John's disciples to understand the time in which they stood with a couple of different metaphors. In verses 16 and 17, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. Well, some of us, perhaps most of us, may need a little bit of basic information for these two different pictures to make sense. A new patch was incompatible with an old garment. If an old garment was needed to be repaired, and a patch was needed, the patch had to first be brought into a similar condition as the old garment. It needed to be washed. It needed to be stripped of any oils or fibers that might cause it to move or react differently than the garments onto which it was going to be attached. It needed to undergo any shrinking it might be susceptible to. Otherwise, it would shrink after it had been attached, after it got wet, after it was washed. It would, it would shrink, it would pull away. It would not respond to movement the same way that the, the, the rest of the cloth would, and it would in fact rip more, and the stitches that were added in would cause a worse tear. It would exacerbate the problem, not help it. Well, wineskin was made by skinning an animal, by cleaning up and preparing the hide, so that it would be both waterproof and have the least effect of taste on the wine that was going to be held within. New and pliable leather has great ability to move and stretch to conform to the shape of whatever is uh, stored inside of it. Well to that complexity we add the new wine. New wine is wine that has not yet been fermented, has not yet been made stable. That process causes changes in temperature and pressure and volume within the wine. So it needs a container that can allow it to to sustain and to withstand changes in pressure as gases are released during the fermentation process. And so new wineskins were well suited for new wine. New wine was going to be changing a lot and new wineskins could adapt with the change. Old wineskins, however, had lost their flexibility. They had been stretched as much as they had the ability to stretch. The pressure of new wine would cause them to burst and everything would go to waste. So taken together, the old garment and the old wineskins had already endured as much as they would be able. They had nothing left to give. They could not be salvaged or refreshed and incorporated into something new. To even attempt to do so would be ruinous. The most important part of both of these pictures is not exactly what we say is represented by the patch or the cloth or the wine or the wineskin, but to see that that what is new, this new thing that is present is incompatible with the old. That's what's critical for us to see here. The new cannot simply be added on to what already exists. It won't work. It can't work, it isn't compatible. The kingdom of God was incompatible with the Jewish religion of that day. The king would not endure any rivals. He would not overlook the faithlessness of those who should have welcomed him as their king and yet sought instead to kill him and rob him of his inheritance. The righteousness of the Jews could not, un- could not withstand the righteousness of Christ. The old covenant and the sacrificial system could not bear the new wine of the gospel. The old structures and practices were not fit to house the kingdom of God, the gospel, and the radical obedience unto which the kingdom's citizens were called. John's disciples were bothered by the fact that Jesus' disciples did not play by the old rules that they did not wear the severity of their life as proof of their devotion, as a garment for everyone to see, that they didn't dance the dance in order to make their position seem more prestigious or to bolster the reputation of their master. Yet John's disciples simply did not understand the significance of what had and what was taking place as Jesus walked the earth with the time I have left, I want to discuss how we can apply this passage to our lives. How can we learn from the mistake of John's disciples and from the answer that Jesus gave to them? First of all, we need to do a better job of understanding the times in which we live. We cannot afford to miss the significance of what has already taken place in the life and ministry of Jesus and the effect that it should have on our own lives each and every day. We cannot afford to live as though Jesus has not come. We cannot afford to live as though his kingdom has not already been established. And we cannot afford to live as though his victory is yet something far off and unreachable. Scripture tells us that the kingdom of God and the gospel it proclaims cannot be thwarted by the will of men or of devils. We need to start living as though we believe that to be true. We are citizens of the victorious kingdom. Our God reigns now and always. And not just in some ethereal way in our hearts, of those, that, of those that love him as though he was some weak modern version of Santa that only has the amount of, of magic in his body according to the, how many people believe or how much Christmas spirit is within them. Many people treat our Savior like that. That his only power is just in the good thoughts and intentions of his people. Now, he is the conquering king. He reigns now on his throne. All authority is his. He is above all powers and all principalities. Beloved, our cause cannot be stopped. We will suffer. Just so you hear that we will suffer. There will be times of mourning and fasting. There will be times when we cannot even think of eating for the anguish of our souls for what we have lost or how we have been persecuted, or what we have seen done to the bride of Christ. Yet even then, we have the promise that God is using our suffering for our good and for the victory of our cause over our enemies. For too long, the evangelical church has lived as though we were a defeated foe just waiting for the knockout blow to take us out of this world. Beloved, that is not the picture that Scripture paints of the kingdom of God and of the bride of Christ. Second, we need to be more careful how we judge other professing Christians, especially if they are from a different culture or tradition than we are. John's disciples presumed that they could stand in judgment of Jesus and his disciples because they didn't behave like the religious elites of that day. May we never be so rash or foolish as we assess the faithfulness of others who proclaim Christ. Much of what we consider essential to the Christian life has been as much formed by culture and tradition as it was by chapter and verse commands in Scripture. If we'll be honest with ourselves, especially as we confront different Christian traditions, that we will see that is true. We are just as much influenced by tradition and culture as we are the commands in Scripture and how we go about living our faith day by day. And to be honest, that's probably okay. That's probably unavoidable. As long as we are using our traditions and our practices as tools to aid us in our obedience to Christ. As long as we use them to make us and keep us faithful, to remind us, we can build structures, we can build institutions, we can build traditions to help keep us faithful, to remind us of the gospel of Christ. That's probably okay, as long as we use them for our good and as long as we realize that other Christians might have different tools in their tool chest to help them address the same, cons- same concerns in their own lives. Recall the words of Paul as he dealt with some of these sorts of issues. And Paul dealt with the church in Rome. Some people ate meat. Others thought that they could only eat vegetables. Some people put a higher priority on some special days. Others viewed all days as the same. Some people felt at liberty to drink alcohol or to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols, knowing that there in fact was no other gods and the meat wasn't actually blemished or defiled. There was conflict. There's people arguing and tearing at each other about these differences, these different convictions that were held. Paul responded like this in Romans 14, 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. In areas where there is no clear command in scripture, and each man's conscience may be bound differently We must learn to give grace and trust that if God is sovereign enough to keep us, then he is sovereign enough to keep his other servants as well, even if they don't do things quite the way that we do it. When there are areas where we see that something that is genuinely gives us concern, we must have enough humility to realize that we might not know the whole story and proceed with caution and gentleness. A humble question asked in love will get you much further with the brother than will an ignorant accusation. So do not ignore sin. We've seen enough already in Christ's teaching to know we cannot simply ignore the sin we see in our brethren. Yet where there can be any doubt we need to be wise enough to proceed with humility and grace. On a similar note to that, We need to become comfortable with the fact that no matter how sanctified we become in this life, no matter how faithfully we walk that narrow path, there will be others who will judge us, question us, and attack us. Many whom you might want to call brother or friend. Don't be surprised by that. Don't let that crush you. There are many who don't want to see others succeed, and will search until they find a way to tear them down just a little bit. John's disciples judged Jesus and his disciples because they did not live the ascetic lifestyle of their master. Yet Jesus told us that men would not be content no matter how someone lived. They would find a way to criticize. Think about Jesus comparing himself to John in Matthew 11, 18 and 19. For John came neither eating or drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by by her deeds. So if you eat and drink, you may be called a glutton and a drunkard. If you associate with sinners, you may be accused of being a friend of sinners or a friend of sin. If you refrain from every possible suspicion of evil or excess, you may be called a demon. You cannot live so that others will always think the best of you. Do not place that burden upon yourself. It isn't possible. And you will only make yourself miserable. Finally, beloved, we need to be sensitive to the reality that much of what makes us comfortable in our religion or much of what we are taught as a child and have never questioned may in fact be incompatible with the kingdom of Christ. We must not be quick to judge the faithfulness of others by their lack of conformity to our traditions and we must always be willing to have our traditions questioned and if needed be willing to abandon them if they are in conflict with the word of God. Those who love their structures or those who love their traditions more than they love the gospel and the kingdom are not worthy of the kingdom. And they will ultimately find themselves outside of the kingdom. This is why in this church you will often hear us speak of being reformed, yet always reforming. No Christian should be so convinced that they are right about everything, that they are unwilling to be questioned, challenged, and convinced according to the word of God and plain reason. No Christian should be so cold and hardened that they cannot be taught, even by somebody who is not as learned as they are. Should always be willing to, to be evaluated under the light of scripture and to rethink anything in our lives accordingly and as a church we will no doubt go through some changes in the years to come as we learn and as we grow as we become convinced of things that we may have been doing that were not right or were not as right as they could have been as god continues to shape us to mature us as a church and as church leadership we will no doubt change over the years not for change sake alone but because We will see new things and better ways of doing things, ways to better reach the people of God, ways to better be faithful to God's word. And that's a good thing. We should want that and welcome that and pray for that. Even as we, as much as any church I know of, love to look through our traditions and find stability and strength there. May God always be about the work of conforming us more to Christ as individuals and as his church, that his bride might be presented pure and spotless to the lamb at the wedding feast. Father, we thank you. We cannot help but be made to feel small as we think of just how much we, we know we don't have it all right and together, how little we have, how little wisdom we possess. Yeah, we can stand because we know your word is dependable and that your spirit is the one who is giving us insight, who is interpreting your word for us, who is impressing how we must live accordingly. Father, help us be willing to, to question or be questioned, to be conformed to your word. Help us to, to see what is incompatible with the gospel and with the kingdom of Christ and be willing to cut it out of our lives. Make us more like Christ. Make us more faithful. Make us more pleasing to you. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen.